Welcome to Ink and Magic, a podcast where we read and discuss the writing craft, world building, and romance of paranormal and fantasy novels. If you love books with bite, set in worlds of magic and mayhem, then you're in the right place. My name's Nikisha Shanae. I go by an S. And I'm Leslie. I write as El Penelope. And welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Ink and Magic. Hey, Les. Hey, Ines. I'm super excited today because we have a special celebrity guest. As we look stop laughing because you are a celebrity. Yes. Let me read her bio so that you understand. For any of y'all who don't know, you're about to know. You're about to know. Because today we have on the amazing Theodore Taylor. So for Theodore, after logging time as a music journalist, a playwright, and a radio writer, she fell in love with penning hot books with heart. Her 50 Loving State series, which features alternative, excuse me, alternate, alternative, I can spell, alternative <laughs> heroes and smart, feisty heroines has become a one-click stop for thousands and thousands of readers. When not thinking of ways to write and sell even more hot books with heart, she's enjoying spending time with her amazing family, going on date nights with her wonderful husband, and he is wonderful. I have met him. Be jealous. <laughs> Learning German, watching all the Shonda Rhimes, which is why we connect so hard, and attending parties thrown by others. She also loves hearing from voices that don't originate inside her head, and that's why she's talking to us. Today. <laughs> Although Please we might be living in her head soon. Talk to me. <laughs> hi. Hi, hi, hi. So great to see you guys. No. Yeah. And what her official bio does not state is that she is the purveyor of universal fantasies, which has changed the life of many an author, hundreds and thousands, I'm sure, who've heard her speak, read the book, taken the course, universal fantasies, all of the butter. We'll talk about it. We'll get into it. But See, yeah. it's so, and we are going to let you, we're totally going to let you talk, but just give us a second because it's so fascinating um, what RWA did for us. It provided platforms for us to talk to each other. And Absolutely. correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things, and we, we're not going to talk about the implosion of RWA, but one of the things that it did that was so amazing is it was it it started getting us teaching each other. Yes. And I think that this idea of universal fantasies was born in a in an RWA presentation. Um, sort of. So, so I had we before the pandemic i lived in california and we would do this annual writing retreat um mm. a beach house writing retreat it was super super lovely and the whole point of this although these are all people i met at rwa like including um in the people who including the people who ran it and it was in the point of it was that we would come together at the end of the year teach each we all had to teach like an hour on something we had learned <laughs> that year. And then we would um, set our goals for the next year. And then we would come back the next year and we would do it again. And so this was the second year. And the first year I barely had anything to talk about. <laughs> I was just like, well, I have this productivity system. Um, and I went to and literally it could be anything like, oh, this is what I learned when I went to this uncon in Seattle and I presented with somebody else. And then um, for the second year, I was just like, I absolutely have nothing to teach. Like the only thing I think I really know about is how to sell books to people outside your genre. 
And little did you know. (laughs) And they were just like, okay, bet, present on that. And so it was one of those things where it was just like, I have nothing to say. But by the time it came for me to teach, I had like this Evernote list full of what I just called universal fantasies. And I explained it thoroughly to them. And I rambled through the whole speech, but like, It went over by half an hour. People had questions. And then this is where RWA comes in. I come back to California and Orange County RWA was just like, oh, we're doing this big conference. We'd love to have you speak, but um, be the keynote speaker, the last note speaker, whatever that last note speaker is, <laughs> the ending speaker, but you have to present on something and we've already seen your productivity theme. And we also already have like other people who are doing productivity systems. Do you have anything else? And I was like, oh, I just soft launched <laughs> I call it, <laughs> this um, theme on universal fantasies, which is how to sell books to people outside your niche. And she was like, ooh, do that. And so I put together a PowerPoint presentation for this RWA thing. And it was really, I I remember getting there in like last minute, putting together the presentation for UF because I was more concerned about the big speech, like (laughs) which was at the end of the whole thing. So I did it, it was the first day. And then I just kept on worrying about this speech that I had to give at the end. But all these people kept on coming up to me and saying, oh, we love this presentation. We love this presentation. And all these other RWA chapters um, invited me to give the presentation, which I did until the pandemic (laughs) stopped me. And so I was just kind of like, instead of going online, I'm going to um, write a book about this because I don't have time to do both. And then Sky Warren, but then Sky Warren was just like, could you present at Ram? Mm-hmm. And it's Sky Warren, so <laughs> if you don't know Ram Sky is the romance you don't know who Sky Warren is, why are you listening to this? <laughs> well, no, some of our listeners are readers, I think. Oh, so. that's true. Yeah, so Sky Warren is a romance author. She created the Romance Author Mastermind. And yes, lots of people have presented there. So. It just it's amazing how much that the the concept resonated. Like everyone heard about this. They're like, ooh, yeah. tell me more. Like, say more about this because it's such a common issue for authors marketing inside their niche, not to mention outside of their niche. And right. I think the concept of universal fantasy is just like open people's eyes. Tell us the name of the book because it's not called Universal Fantasy. <laughs> it's called Seven Figure Fiction, How to Use Universal Fantasy to Sell Your Books to Anyone. And I will say when I first launch this, I thought, oh, this concept is for people who write in a niche like me. I write in um, something called interracial romance, which is basically um, a romance between usually, in my case, a woman of color and um, someone else who's from a different um, ethnic background from her. And so I Real, so I realized there were certain universal things that you could use to sell these books. And I always called it like, um, I used to kind of term it as, oh, 
some audiences, maybe they think they're racist. Maybe they think they don't want to read books with Black heroines, but they're not. They do want to read these books. I'm going to explain to you why. <laughs> so, And so I would always kind of mark it like that. And <laughs> it worked. And so with the assumption that if someone wasn't picking up my book, it wasn't because it was a... Um, Black woman heroine. It was because they did not ex they did not understand why they wanted to read this book yet. <laughs> like all the universal reasons why you want to read this book, even if you don't personally identify with this character. And so I thought it was about that. I thought it was about niche. But as I've as the um, brand has grown and I've taught and I've like run a course and taught within the brand, I realize it's about connecting with your audience mm -hmm. <laughs> like and that and um i think that's why it resonates with so many writers because it opened a conversation up about oh this isn't just about selling to your audience this isn't just about no, i shouldn't say just because selling to your audience it's is important, very, very important. You want to sell that book, right? Yes. You want them to pay you. I pay you. It isn't only about becoming a better writer. It isn't only about selling. It's about connecting with your audience and connecting your audience to your story. And for me, I think I took that for granted because I was a playwright. And for playwrights, you cannot write anything without the the audience in mind. I mean, some playwrights do. <laughs> some, there are some playwrights, I, I won't name names. No. <laughs> I'm sure there are very famous ones who don't care that much about their audience. I'll, I'll name dead names. Albie, okay. <laughs> who, you know, they have some big hits that I love, but I don't think they're necessarily thinking about the audience. I think they're thinking about um, what, I think they're thinking about what they want to say and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about what you want to say. You know, as writers, we all come to um, writing for different reasons. But um, I think I came up when I got my playwright, my degree in playwriting, my MFA in playwriting, because as I always joke, I just wasn't poor enough <laughs> when I also signed on for grad school loans to get this degree, it was really, really clear within the program, everything that you wrote on this paper would be presented to an audience and that audience would give you instant feedback. And so you're always, always thinking about the audience. Like you're not just saying, oh, I think this is funny, so I'll put this in. You're literally thinking as you listen to the audience, listen to your play, hey, I thought that was funny, but the audience didn't laugh. Either I need to land that joke or I need to take it out. Mm -hmm. So I think this um, book, this these courses kind of provide writers write, writers who write books because that's very lonely compared to playwriting. Right. And that's a different experience because we don't get that feedback until no. months or years later and in reviews, which we're scared to look at half the time. Right. And so you, no one really talks to, in all these kind of craft discussions or craft books, writers aren't really encouraged to 
to do that. There's not, I mean, you have beta readers, you have editors and mm. things like that. But on a large scale, having that background in playwriting is actually really amazing to understand that there's a feedback loop that you are working for and that's how you're going to be successful. Right. And, you know, one, it's so funny, you just talk about reviews. So I was also, <laughs> I just, I, 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 I had so many jobs before I just did this permanently. So I also was a theater reviewer. And one of the things that um, my boss, the head of the theater reviews at Pittsburgh City Paper, um, told me when I signed on was this is Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's what he was like. This is Pittsburgh. This is New York. This is not. So when you write a review, you are basically saying to people, who people, you want to go see this play. It is worth your time and your money. So we're not going to write like a highfalutin review about this. Like unless the actors are really terrible, if the experience is terrible, that's why, you know, they're going to get a bad review. But if you go to our town or um, what did I see? I think it was like, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. It was like this community theater troupe and they were all very enthusiastic and it was so much fun. And I gave it like a sterling review because everyone had fun. They mm -hmm. did what they were supposed to do. Right, they were not getting Tony Awards, but they- Right, exactly. <laughs> or um, were they going to, yeah, or are they going straight to Broadway with right. this um, production? No, but if you are living in Pittsburgh and you want something, you want something that will be enjoyable and worth the six dollars. <laughs> this is <laughs> century Pittsburgh, <laughs> like um, to go to. Yes, I highly, highly recommend it. And I've always kept that in the back of my mind, with as far as you know, reviews, because he had to make that distinction. I think a lot of people, when they think about um, professional reviewers, think about um, and a lot of professional reviewers, I see it all the time where they'll be like, well, they're not doing anything new. Mm -hmm. and so I didn't like it. Right. And then, you know, it, it, it will be the situation, especially on things like Rotten Tomatoes, where the reviewers are like, they did nothing new. This is all by the books. I've seen this all before. And it's just like Rotten Tomato reviewer score, official professional reviewer score, like 12% audience score, 90%. Exactly. I always look at the audience score. Butter. I think that sometimes with, with Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the higher, if, you know, you're going to enjoy a movie if the reviewers are like 50, but the audience is like 90 or something like yes. that. <laughs> like I kind of look at that ratio and see, okay, mm -hmm. my enjoyment is inversely proportional to how much the actual professional reviewers like. <laughs> So we see what reviews are, why reviews are important. And we see also why it's this is important to the audience. Mm. But let's turn it back to authors. Oh, sorry. And what, <laughs> what is, because we haven't gotten to what is a universal fantasy? Oh, <laughs> <yes> we haven't. <laughs> we should have probably started there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, a universal fantasy, I always describe it as it is, not trope. So a trope is um, what it is. So for example, my favorite, and I heard a rumor that it's also Leslie's favorite, is Beauty and the Beast. Woohoo! 
that's the trope. But the universal fantasy is what makes that trope taste good. Like what makes it resonate with an audience. So all all these things that you get when you think of Beauty and the Beast. So usually you have like big, powerful beasts, um, fragile woman who's going to either heal him with love, that's the universal fantasy, healing somebody that you're scared of or who's wounded or who's bigger than you with love. Um, other universal fantasies in that is being yanked out of your boring world um, and somehow, oh, also um, forced relationships where you're forced into this relationship That's and you think favorite. it's going to be terrible, mm -hmm. but it turns out to be great. Yes. And I love that universal fantasy, um, particularly, I remember there was um, um, this, my um, parents dragged me to go see a poet speak and I didn't want to go. And um, her name was Nikki Giovanni. Oh, Nikki is one of my favorite poets ever. Right? <laughs> I was kidding. I didn't yeah. You didn't know yet. <laughs> oh, she's in St. Louis. We got to go. Da, da, da. My mom was really insistent on it. And I remember not wanting to go to this thing. And I go. And it is like one of the most seminal moments of my life. I can still see her at this bookstore. It was standing room only. Mm -hmm. All these black people gathered. And like, you know, her if you've never heard Nikki Giovanni speak, speak, she she'll maybe read a poem or two. <laughs> and then she'll but it's more it. like a full-on like comedy hour lecture. Nikki Giovanni it, has, kinda... she has a thug life tattoo. <laughs> Nikki has a Tupac Douglas tattoo on her arm. She's the goat. No, no questions. Yes. So I go there, and I don't want to go there. I am the most reluctant person. I'm like, this is going to be terrible. I will probably fall asleep. And then it's glorious. It's life changing. And I remember driving home and being like, I'm sorry, I didn't want to go. And my mom saying like this thing that kind of changed my life. Like, oh, sometimes you think something's going to be terrible, but then it turns out to be the best. And that's in, and I think we've all had events like that in our lives. So I think this is, and that's what makes this a universal fantasy, the idea of a marriage or a relationship that you think is going to go terribly. And then it's the love of your life. And I think that's why audiences love to see it played out again and again and again. It's, and I think that's why it's a, Again, a universal fantasy. So that's one of the universal fantasies that this trope runs on, that powers this trope. It's it's back to the audience again. It's like, why yeah. do audiences resonate with certain things? Why are certain stories timeless? And you can tell them over and over again, and people will always gravitate towards that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's another thing that, like if you're in an MFA program, for example, <laughs> um, learning to write creative writing or fiction, you're, they're not talking about what the audience wants, really. They're not talking about how to right. That also struck me. My um, roommate at the time was in, um, I was doing the playwriting program at Carnegie Mellon. And she was doing the creative writing program at um, University of Pittsburgh. And I went to one of their readings. And A, it was kind of interesting because it was just them. <laughs> so it was just kind of like, and they're friends. 
right? And so, and they would just read what they were working on. Sometimes it was unfinished. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was unsatisfactory and stuff like that. And afterwards, people would be like, oh, the writing was beautiful. I just love what you did with that turn of phrase. And I, and the whole time I'm like wondering in the back of my mind, you guys are also taking out loans to get this MSA. <laughs> How are you going to sell this to an audience? Like I'd never, yeah. How are you going to make money? I never pay to read any. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you know, with I, I have this really funny story where I had to do. There's this thing called a um, one person monologue, uh, a monologue, a one act monologue, and I had to do this and. That's when I learned I'm really terrible at one act monologues. But, um, the people who were in it, the person who was in it was um, is now like a famous Broadway actor. So he acts in it and he does the best he can, but it's just terrible. And so the people in the class were like Josh Gad, who plays Olaf now, <laughs> Olaf and Frozen, Megan Hilty, who is um, well known for um, her turn as Glinda and Wicked, and all these like famous people, Katie Mixon, <laughs> American Housewife, and they're all telling me why this play just was it, nicely, but why it was boring. Why it doesn't didn't resonate, and it is the most excruciating feeling ever. <laughs> like to know that oh Leslie Odom from Hamilton, like all these people were <laughs> in this class. What wow. I tell you, and so and the memory only becomes more excruciating as they become more famous. Oh. <laughs> it was just the people you were in school with, and now it's like oh, I uh, you know I bombed in front of these people. So it is like so much about audience and less about what other writers think or what your editor thinks and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think I've lost the train of thought. <laughs> okay, no, that's exactly what I I wanted. Because I've heard people, because when you said it, when the first time that I heard you said it, which was at RAM, I was like, this makes so much sense. And then I saw some other people whisper, like, I don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it as clear as day so for, I, I just wanted um to for you to explain it so because it it's, it still just makes sense to me what you just said I don't feel like I need any further explanation mm. but well I feel with the I don't get it crowd it, it's interesting because like you know there are so many things I don't get. <laughs> so I think, and I think that's fine. <laughs> like if, if I don't get it, I don't get it. If it doesn't resonate with me, it doesn't resonate with me. So I always, you know, when people kind of, sometimes people get really upset about not getting it. And so first of all, I would just say, that's fine. Like there are certain things that don't resonate with me that I just don't get, like, you know, cleaning up regularly. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a universal fantasy. That's yeah, not I mean, having someone clean up for you is the universal fantasy. That is the universal fantasy. 
um, talking on the phone to order anything. <laughs> but it does seem like you have yeah. like a gift for this because mm -hmm. I get it. I understand what you're saying. But if you asked me, well, what are the universal fantasies of Beauty, Beauty and the Beast before I read your book? I'm like, I don't know. People like it. I don't know why they like it. Like, it's hard for me personally to understand why people like it. Like, yeah. I, I can know why I like something, but I also know I'm not my audience all the time. So right. you were able to break it down and sort of see those things that lots of people resonate with, which is a specific gift that certain people have and certain people don't have, which I think makes it a little bit difficult for those of us who are like, yeah, no, it's great. I want to do that. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> well, I think part of it is practicing doing it. So um, how does one practice doing it? How does well, one get better you know, at the butter? I, I don't, I bring up season two of the bear. Like, <laughs> like every other sentence. I don't know if you've watched season two of The Bear. I have not watched season one of The Bear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, spoiler, they're, in season two, they're collapsing the whole restaurant and they're building it from scratch. And some of the people that work in the restaurant are just people who just happen to start cooking. So they have to learn how to cook formally, right? And then um, some of the people, one guy is a pastry chef. So he gets sent to study how someone else does um, pastries in Amsterdam. And it's life-changing and he gets all sorts of new ideas and stuff like that. And then even, this is what I found so interesting, the guy who's just going to um, manage the staff and host, he goes to a really, another restaurant and he sees how this really sophisticated, there's a, there's a whole term for it, but um, it's some kind of internship where you just go and study at another restaurant. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's like, well, I can be as big, the person can be as big as a chef, or the person can be, the person's going to manage the um, staff, but he goes to another restaurant and he just interns there. Although again, there's an, a, there's a official term for it. And he studies what they are doing. Um, writing is very, interesting, especially um, romance writing, because sometimes we, you know, if you're doing an MFA in playwriting, like the first year before they even let you, our second, your second year, you do a series of presentations and you present to the public. But the first year, and this is including for the acting school, for um, our writing school, for the lighting school, for any person in the um, production program, at um, Carnegie Mellon, they're not letting you near the public your first year. You're just studying what other people do. And then if you're acting your second year, you still don't get to go near the public. Now you have to study how to um, use your instruments, how to um, make your voice, how to um, make your voice resonate, how to take um, direction, all these things that you don't think about actors doing when they make such fantastic choices. It just seems effortless. So um, with us, though, with ro romance writers, what's kind of funny to me is we're kind of like the second season of The Bear. Some of us have like, I have uh, MFA, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> like a lot of people who make a lot more money than I do, do not have an MFA. They're just total home cooks. Um, a lot of people um, just 
come to a lot of people are just kind of maybe curious about it or sometimes people are journalists first a lot of lawyers for some reason yeah, so many lawyers, <laughs> <Tons of> lawyers. <laughs> yeah. i don't i don't know what that's all about <laughs> there, 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 it's the argument of it and there's there's a story and an argument of proving that you're right yeah or it's just the opposite of dry legal things you're <laughs> making people fall in love so there's all sorts of ways we get to it and so i love the idea with the second season of the bear of really studying how other people are doing things like and so i think a lot of people want also you know they don't have growth mindset so a lot of people really want to believe that they are a good writer like that this is a static thing i'm a good writer and they don't and that is so important to them they don't necessarily think about well how can i be a better writer how or they only think about how they can be a better writer they don't think about things like well how can i connect with my audience how can i um market in a way that makes people want to read this so i think it's kind of it, it, I, I don't know if i'm explaining this in a coherent manner but it's kind of like when people want visibility but they don't necessarily want to hard study what has made other people get that visibility. <laughs> They're like, oh, I want the visibility that that author has, but they don't quite understand why that author has visibility or what that author is doing in their marketing to um, enjoy that kind of visibility. So I think the first thing, if you're really confused about butter, or if you're like, I don't, I don't know why this sells to, to be like, I don't know why this sells. I should find out. Yeah. Like this is, this is what, if you're really curious about it, but you know, part of me is like, I, I think because I tend to overthink things. Sometimes I'm like, well, these are the beauty and the beast fantasies that I like. So that's what I'm going to put in the book. We're done. <laughs> I'm, not looking, I'm not looking at anybody else's things, but I am identifying what I particularly like about this book and I am, or this fantasy or this trope and I am using it in my book. But then sometimes I'm like, well, I am going to try this and like, I want to look at other, like, for example, one of the things I'm really good at is a faithful dog, what I call a faithful dog romance. And this is usually like book three, book four in a series. Is this like a cinnamon roll romance? No, a faithful dog romance is um, usually for me, it's because I write a lot of mafia romance. So there's usually the main guy has some dude who um, as Travis um, Scott once said, we'll do it for a Gucci belt. Like we'll kill, we'll kill anybody, <laughs> you know, we'll kill anybody. If he says, hey, this person's giving me trouble. You oh, it's like an Amos from, from, yes, um, like an Expanse. Amos from, right. So from Scandal. Oh, from the Expanse. Oh, from Expanse. Amos yeah. from Expanse and the guy from Scandal. <laughs> like, you know, so this dude. And so I love giving this dude 
because he's a faithful dog, but also because he's really interesting because he doesn't have a lot of um, moral compass. I love giving this person someone deserving to love, who needs his protection, who needs his love, and then, you know, um, creating a romance out of that. And as far as bestsellers go across the board, a lot of my bestsellers are faithful dog romances because I particularly am drawn to that. But like the first time I did it, I was just kind of like, oh, it was an accident. <laughs> and the second time, but the second time I did it, I had, I was like, I had seen like, season, I think season two of The Expanse where I got really frustrated because I was shipping Amos and somebody else and she got with um, the captain. Yeah. And, and I was just like, I am Naomi. so frustrated. Naomi. <laughs> I want this guy to have a romance. I want this guy, I want to write a faithful dog. And sometimes it's just kind of like that. That's better. Like when you have these feeling like kind of learning to really engage with something. Like if I'm frustrated mm -hmm. with anything, yeah. I'm just like, oh, he's not treating her right. I can do it better. Not, Let me try to write this better. Yeah. Like write it better. Do yeah. it. <laughs> like that's better. Like, you know, if in, you know, if a chef goes to Anthony Bourdain, bless his heart, once had like the best thing, the best um, article about eating an airport hamburger and how sad it was <laughs> and, how, and how like just delivered with just corporate, like just get it out. Like, you know, and that, and that really made me think like, what is a good burger? What makes a good burger? It has to be juicy. It has to be da da da. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really experience your entertainment, like um, I it's do a lot of self-reflection. It sounds like you like yeah. mine your own likes and what draws you to yes. a book, and then try to pull those out and put them in the books that you write. Absolutely, <laughs> thank you for making that coherent. That <laughs> just said, like yeah, like you know, interact with the thing with the stories, and um, you know, it's fine to say why you don't like things, but really pay attention to why you like things. And when you don't like things, really try to figure out what the opposite of that would be. One of the things I really love doing is reading um the I am a ass am I the asshole? Oh yes, on um Reddit, and. I think about all the time because they'll they'll say something like, um, "Oh, I just had a baby," or the zoo will say something like, "Oh, my wife just had twins," <laughs> and um, it, but she had twins like six months ago, and we're still not having sex, and she's doing a really bad job of keeping the house. But when I tried to bring it up with her, she said I was the asshole. Um, and so. <laughs> Like, Am I the asshole? <laughs> hmm, let me let me think about that for ten seconds. <laughs> right. So you know, if I'm writing an epilogue, and this kid, in this woman that has just gone through this whole romance with this dude has um, had twins, what's the opposite of that? Oh my gosh, he is treating her gently. 
He, they have a full staff to take care of her every need. He's helping her with the baby. He's showing her that um, he changed a diaper in 2.2 seconds, his fastest time yet. He's really enjoying being a father, really enjoying doing his part of the mental load and the workload. And it's not formal. It's not like, you know, but it is kind of what women like what wives, a lot of these people who end up divorced and I am the, am I the asshole? It's what they want. Like if you're going to complain it's the about fantasy. Them, yeah, it's a fantasy. So what is fantasy the going? So I love like scrolling through am I the asshole? And like, that's basically epilogues right there. You're looking. That's a huge project. Do the opposite of the what opposite of doing. am I the asshole? Like, yes, that is, that's gold. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Reddit, for the powerful fantasies that you. Another so, thing that I, I really like you. that you do, Theodora, is that I feel like you're you're pulling the universal fantasies out of universal stories. So that I love that mm -hmm. in your book because you just did the Butterless for romance. I love that in your book, you pulled from Cinderella, you pulled from Beauty and the Beast, and you pulled from one that I didn't think I liked, Persephone and Hades. Which oh no. now I'm kind of like, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, what I find fascinating about Hades and Persephone's is that I love, I love, I love, I love things like Cinderella. I love things that start off as fire stories, like anything that's like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you why this star is here and this star is here. And you know, you know that this story held people around a fire. Like they were like, oh, I'm going to go do something else because this story is kind of boring. Like <laughs> Hades and Persephone's, it, Persephone is a story that has held people around a fire since ancient times. So I always say with Hades and Persephone's, like if you're not pulling that off, then it's because it's usually an execution pro problem or you don't understand the butter of Hades and Persephone. But yeah. What is the butter of Hades and Persephone? One, go get the book. But two, <laughs> because because again, I'm I don't I think I speak for Leslie too. Where we're not bully romance or dark mm. romance readers. Yeah, and I don't like Hades, mean boys. Yeah, and Hades is mean. He freaking kidnaps her. That's why I haven't. I haven't jumped on the Hades and Persephone trend. I've tried a few books and I don't know if it was an execution thing because it could just be a me thing. It's like mm -hmm. too mean. I'm like, I, I need my cinnamon rolls to balance out the alphas. <laughs> yeah, I'm the opposite. So I'm always, I'm always like very, very curious when I love something like um, Heartstopper where it's just like a total cinnamon roll hero. There's no like um, inks. Well, there's no... Um, there's no like huge, there's no big fixer upper thing that we have to do with um, Nick. Always free. Yeah, I think, yes, <laughs> with Nick. Heartstopper is this great MM romance that started off as a, I think it started off as a webtoon or it might've started off as a graphic novel. I, I, the origin story is very murky in my, in my um, experience. And so, but I love it. Like I've read the web too. I re, I'm still reading the graphic novels. It's just, you know, ridiculous. And it's not to my taste. So I love things like that, where it's just like, I don't, because it's the original concept. It's like, oh, I don't think I like cinnamon roll heroes. 
But what Alice Olsman has done is explained to me exactly why I do like a cinnamon roll hero. Even like though it. I think I want a dark Hades. It's like, no, no, honey, you, you like cinnamon roll too. Let me explain to you why. Because she gets a lot of, she packs a lot of universal fantasies into it, including like um, one of the ones I love from Heartstopper is he gives you everything that the dude that you broke up with or um, or in Charlie's case, he's having a situationship with this other guy and along comes this really great guy who treats him the opposite of that. Like he's completely cinnamon roll. He's so supportive. He is always there for Charlie, no matter what. Like um, later on, it's revealed that Charlie has an eating disorder and he's just really supportive and great. But at the same time, you know, help, um, saying this is something that we that we need to work on. And so to be loved like that is, you know, universal fantasy, someone who's there for you in sickness and health, treats you better than the last dude did, <laughs> makes you feel like you're worthy, totally. Like, and she packs this in to Heartstopper. I will tell you, when I do like darker heroes, it's when we get his POV. So it's mm. hard for me in a single POV to have yeah. a mean hero. But when I'm in his head and I see the reasons behind his mean actions, then I can be more on board. That's my experience. I have a theory and it's only, it's not even a theory, it's a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis. Sure. <laughs> but that when you have, a, if you, when you have what I would call a villain hero, um, when you have a villain hero, he has to be fixed up in his wound has to be fixed up and you and if it's a single pov you have to see it, the woman has to come in and like fully nurse him and then he has to kind of like apologize and say no or if not apologize do something heroic in order to make up for all the villainous things he's done before and when i see a single pov and so, because I like dark romance, but sometimes I'll read a dark romance and he's just so mean. Like, I don't see how the author's going to pull off, it's, and it's a single POV woman. I don't see how the author's going to pull off redeeming him, which is why I always um, suggest, like, just give us a hint of redemption <laughs> at the beginning. If you want, like, a super, super broad audience, like, give us a hit. Give us a hint that mm -hmm. he's about to be fixed up. But, it, Again, there's an audience for that. There are I'm people sure. who really love a straight up bad, bad guy. And, you know, I'm always just like, that's Ooh. awesome. It's not for me, but it's, it, I like darkish. <laughs> I like, I guess morally, I guess they call it morally gray. Morally gray. gray. I, I tend yeah. to be in the more gray in area. More gray area. I remember yeah. you and I having a conversation about dark romance because I just don't get it. And we were having, a, one of the ways that you brought it down to my level is we, were, we started to talk about this um, plot point moment, this beat moment called the pet the dog moment. Mm. And the pet the dog, so there's the save the cat moment, which happens at the beginning where you basically show why we should love this character. Maybe they go up a tree and save the cat, save the cat moment, right? And then the pet the dog moment happens later in the book, near to the midpoint, closer mm. to entering act three where the hero typically shows, reminds us 
of why we are rooting or should be rooting for them. And I feel like you can skip over the save the cat moment with a villain, an anti-hero or a morally gray hero. Yeah. And it's, if you show us that pet the dog moment, which is like the cat, but it's later, so it's the dog, that can be that moment. If you get there, I mean, someone like me would probably stop reading before I got there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's for the people who love this genre, who are really on board with a very dark hero, I think. I think yeah. I love what Theodora said about like at the beginning, even if it's single POV, if you can, you know, single POV does a good job of showing the changes in the expression and you're, you're, the reader understands something is happening in this person, even though you're not in their head. Doing that enough to show the softness or the the care, whatever it is that you need to get over the hump when you're not in his head. But yeah, I think I would personally just not be reading by the time we got to. <laughs> or that he cares about something or that, you know, um, when I think Inez pointed out earlier <laughs> off, um, off mic that um, Killmonger, you know, he has a tragic backstory. So I like a hint of the wound, uh, um, something like, you know, like there's this thing that we're trying to fix in this person. Like Marvel always, in my opinion, just waste <laughs> great villain heroes. I'm like, why? I guess you just, I don't know why you do all this character work with them and we don't get to see a romance ever for Loki. <laughs> got it. We're getting it with Loki. Is there, are you watching? No, did you watch no, really? I mean, that's not the best romance. I, I, didn't, mean, I didn't watch season two. I, I mean, watched, he, the person that he falls in love with? Yeah, I watched season one. You haven't watched season, in the, I did watch season two, love, but, season so one. I, but it did not resonate the same way <laughs> that okay. I did with you. We already told y'all, like if you listen to us and then be prepared for spoilers, so. In season one, he's falling in love with himself, another version of himself. Right. Yes. How perfect I, is that for a narcissist? I guess so. Yeah, but that doesn't, but that's not a love story I resonate with. Exactly. It's kind of like, all right. It just makes me feel he's a narcissist. And so the fact that like I like season two better because he doesn't end up with himself. Like he kind of becomes what he needs to become to serve the universe as opposed to um, I saw it differently. I feel like, yeah, but he's also doing it for her. Dead silence. Dang. Okay. <laughs> well, I, it, I guess because she's him, yeah. like he's doing it for himself. Like he's becoming the person he needs to become, or the god that he needs to become for himself. So I guess. Romance-wise, I just never felt like, you know. Yeah. That's deep, though. Yeah. A deep philosophical. Not, also, not she doesn't put a lot of energy into changing him. <laughs> like, he's just like, well, I'll change. I don't, huh. So, <laughs> I, yeah. And we don't get a lot of her point of view. Like, it's, I, you know, yeah. So I just, I guess I just didn't really, the res, the romance in that didn't resonate. Although I loved it. I loved season two of Loki. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was um, great character work, but mm -hmm. the romance didn't really resonate for me. Okay. So I say Marvel still. <laughs> <laughs> not great at romance. 
No, they're not. They're all hero's journey, except for Black Panther. They're all hero's journey. But even then, Black Panther ended as a hero's journey. Well, not even as a hero's journey, because we didn't get to see the romance Mm -hmm. play out. Because we couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do not want to bring us down. <laughs> you guys were talking a, a lot about um, with the, 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 the dark romances or with the, the anti-heroes of the morally gray guys that sometimes that that um, can be like single point of view. And that is Leslie likes it better when it's dual because she can get into her head. And Theodore and I were having a conversation about, well, a, a, a word conversation typed out about big misunderstandings. Mm. So a big misunderstanding, we've talked about these before on the podcast, but a big misunderstanding is where the hero and the heroine, for whatever reason, the communication breaks down, either mm. on purpose or from some kind of romance hand wavium, and they are just like, okay, this is not going to work out. They're not getting all the information. And that's the main conflict. When mm-hmm. the main conflict is that's can be solved with a two-minute conversation, that feels unsatisfying as yeah. a reader. Well, it's interesting. So one of the things I was saying to Inez offline is that communication itself is an interesting thing. So like the whole concept of communication is fairly new. Like, oh, let's have good communication. Let's communicate with each other. Beforehand, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, especially in romance, there would be like, there would be a misunderstanding and you would just trust what was inside your head. <laughs> you of half of these psychology terms, you would just assume that um, if you thought poorly of the heroine, your assumption was true and you weren't going to communicate with her because that wasn't a thing. So like it, during the 80s romance, I could read any of these things that could have been solved with a modern two-minute conversation, and I would have been totally satisfied back in the 80s. Yeah. Now, um, now, you know, even if it's set in, his, in a historical time, you do want good communication or you want the big misunderstanding to be um, totally understandable, if you will. Like, oh, they're having this big misunderstanding because the mom who he trusted told him that she purposefully ruined his um, life in that I have, a, I have one coming up in the um, novella I'm doing, and the um, brother character insinuates to the main character that the only reason um, the heroine paid him any attention was to throw him off his game. It's a hockey romance. And he loses like this big um, tournament after he meets, after um, he meets and is confused by the heroine. And that's a big misunderstanding. And so he's not going to go communicate with her and say, hey, is what your brother said true? (laughs) They're going to have this big misunderstanding. And the audience is going to be like, oh, no, we need this cleared up. He liked her so much before this big misunderstanding. We want to clean this up. And, you know, I always compare it to I'm obsessed with YouTube shorts where they just clean stuff. Or you organize. Like you organize. have to organize. Or it's like my room beforehand, my room now. Yeah. And like TikToks, all that stuff. And it is, I could watch these videos for 
hours. It's just something soothing about it, just watching something being cleaned up. And so for me, when I'm writing a romance or reading a romance where there's a big understanding and it is understandable and she needs to know that her brother who she trusts did this, did this, ruined her relationship. Like, and so you're reading because you're like, I need to, they need to clear this up. They need to clear this up. So then as a writer, you have some interesting, um, I guess, math problems that you have to do. It's like, first, I got to force them into proximity. They hate each other now, but I got to force them into proximity somehow. They need to have, they need to get to a level of intimacy where they're going to have this big conversation and then they need to forgive each other. So you're literally, the the relationship is a mess. So you're cleaning it up. You're cleaning oh, it up. I and love that, that formula. It's a little shiny relationship. Oh. And so that's why I still love the big misunderstanding. But I think with the big misunderstanding, you can't just be like, um, MacGuffin. You can't just love it. be internal. I, I like yours because it's external. Someone she trusts, you know, there's a big a reason she trusts this person. A lot of times it's their assumptions or fears. And that's yeah. when it's really less, less satisfying. But like, yeah, I think you're right. It works when there is a really good reason for them to believe this thing other mm -hmm. than, oh, I just think he doesn't like me anymore and I'm going to run away. Like, you know, in, insecurities and fears and assumptions are terrible reasons to have a, a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for... A big misunderstanding, especially in romance, because obviously this is me being a playwright, but um, Othello, like, <laughs> I was always so frustrated. <laughs> I was always so frustrated, you know, because it's just like, oh, you, you trust this guy, but he's whispering in your ear, but he it, he is not true. It's not true. So I always love things like I call it in the book, in the um, Universal Fantasy Romance um, list. I call it the Romeo and Juliet um, universal fantasy um, where I had some special name for it that I forgot it, but it's basically a fantasy where it doesn't happen in the original work, but everyone wishes it had happened. And so everyone wishes that, um, spoiler alert, if you've not read <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, um, she, he kills himself because she thinks she's dead. And then she poisons, I think she poisons herself um, for real when he she sees that he's dead. So we all wish that they hadn't had, that they- Like he woke up a second earlier or whatever. Right, and that they were together. In, and that's why most Romeo and Juliet stories, romances end with happily ever after, even though the original, original didn't. So yeah. I think with Othello, we all kind of hope, wish that there had been more communication, <laughs> yeah. that they had cleared up this misunderstanding, that this that this um, Iago guy had gotten his comeuppance and stuff yeah. like that. But you know, it's a tragedy. Right. So I think, especially with tragedies, we all wish that, like, there's a lot of um, we all have to. A lot of us have to read Othello in at either the. English level of high school or yeah. um, or grad school. And so it's just universal fantasy of like, oh, I wish it hadn't ended that way. I wish this tragedy would have gone 
differently. And that's like your, am I the asshole thing? Like take that, but make it better. Yes. And make it something that you actually want to have happen. What's the opposite of that? Yeah, what's the opposite of that? <laughs> the opposite like, of they, they communicate and, and, and Iago gets yeah, gets what's punished, coming punished terribly for being horrible. So, so speaking of endings, we are coming up to time. But before we let you go, one of the things Leslie and I do, we either talk about everyday magic or we talk about what we are reading or watching. And because you watch so much stuff, I want to know what you're watching that you're I, loving. I feel like I don't watch Whatever. <laughs> that much. But then when I'm talking, I'm like, like 50 different film yeah, and TV yeah. references. Encyclopedia of film and TV references, basically. Yes. So there's two things that I really, really loved and that I want to, you know, eventually write about. Um, but Blue Eye Samurai, oh my gosh, it was just full of butter. It was a really interesting. Um, the romance is so it's slow burn, but it is like, oh, I'm on the edge of my seat to see how it turns out. It's really, really well done. And it has a lot of um, location butter because oh. one of the ways it opens up is that it says, listen, Japan closed its borders for 200 years, which is interesting because like, it's not something that maybe a lot of people know or think about. And, um, you know, and they said like no foreign influence. So already you have a location where it's just like, this story is set during a time where Japan is hidden. So we're going into a location that has been previously hidden from us historically, you know, story-wise, maybe you never had access to it because you never watched anything Japanese, but now from Japan set during this period, but now you have this anime that's that has this interesting hidden location. So I love the butter of the location. And then um, for the other thing that I really loved, um, Saltburn. I haven't watched it yet, but it's on my list. I really want to see that. So, well, Saltburn was really, really interesting because I like a thing where half the people who watch it hate it, but made it to the freaking end. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of like the numbers that Saltburn is posting on Amazon, you know, the amount of attention that it's getting. I love something that's that people have a complicated um, love relationship with like that, like how, and she does a lot of things in it. Um, she puts a lot of viral moments, what I would think of as like, oh, this is going to get people talking. This is going, this is the thing that people are going to talk about in the review. And often for writers, I think you can um, write, like, oh, this is your Beauty and the Beast story. But think about a moment. <laughs> think about a moment. Like, what are people going to say in the reviews where they're just like, oh, when he came. And I always think about it as like the Beast library moment. Like, when he gives her the library, people talk about it a lot because it's a whole library and it was exactly what she wanted. So what is the thing that people in reviews are going to be like, he did this. 
and or she did this or this thing happened and it was so interesting and I'm going to mention in my review. So with Saltburn, it's very obvious <laughs> what these moments are. She, it feels like it was completely planned and thought out and it's a movie that knows exactly what it wants to be. Like it is just really, she knows how she wants her audience to feel about these moments. She knows that she wants her audience to be fascinated, even if they're disgusted or repelled. She wants them to keep on watching. And I love something like that, where it's just like, um, well, now we have a Jacob Alordi bathwater candle because everybody was just like, I'm watching this moment and I cannot look away. So I just really love Sovereign. <laughs> It makes me think like TikTok moments, like a filmmaker making a film in yes. the age of TikTok. Um, and especially, I know musicians now are, yeah. are, they have to create their songs. So the very beginning is TikTokable. No more intros, slow intros. The mm -hmm. song has to hit in the first five or 10 seconds because that's how it's going gonna, it's gonna to go viral. And so more artists are thinking about how can my artwork, no matter what medium it is, go viral? What's the TikTok portion? What's the viral moment? Yes. And that's really fascinating. Well, it's all it's it's kind of been funny because we what did we listen to the other day that had gone viral on TikTok, but it was toward the middle of the song? Oh. It was the song by Clint Eastwood by the Gorillas. <laughs> oh, the old song. Yeah. Yeah, it was an old song. If you have kids right now, it is a really interesting time because they'll come through and they'll be hum humming something from the 90s, but just the middle. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just, just the hook, <laughs> you know? and you're like, how, how did you hear about this song? Like, why are you here? Why are you um, humming Clint Eastwood by the Gorillas? And you know, they will have found it on TikTok or whatever. But it, it will be funny because it's like, oh, for example, there's this Icelandic person named Leve. She is huge. Like when I tell you she is huge, like her concerts sell out. You don't, she's the hugest person you don't know about because she's like huge on TikTok. And so then we were just like, oh, if you like Leve, listen to Bjork. <laughs> right. Bjork is one that I you know and love. love. But then, like you said, like the intro is, it will come. She'll start singing soon. Right. <laughs> Yeah, all of these things to each other right. and serving your audience. So yeah, the t big takeaway for everybody, think about your audience first. Yes. Think about what they like and yes. retroactively like look at things you like and don't like and see why and then try to figure out how to yeah. either do that or, or do the thing that is better than that. The estimation was perfect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Next time you're going to be like, how should That's I sign it? <laughs> Leslie's hired to write the, the marketing for university. I know, right? <laughs> Wait, so Leslie, what are you watching and enjoying? I have been watching Slow Horses. Oh. It is a British spy show on Apple TV. My brother was like, you have to watch this. You'll love it. I watched the first episode and I'm like, why did you think I would like this? He's like, no, keep going. It gets better. And so it's one of those things where Gary Oldman is in it, who is a master. Kristen Scott Thomas, who is masterful. It's I'm in season two. There are three seasons out now. They have shot the fourth one. So don't worry, like there's a lot, if you like it, there's a lot here and there's a lot more coming because apparently they shoot the, the next season before the, the current season comes out. And yeah, if you like spy spy shows, 
it is it's really good and if the first episode puts you off go to the second one <laughs> it does get better and hookier that's what i always say about for all mankind it's like <laughs> wait for three episodes give it three episodes and then you'll be hooked right um that reminds me though of one more thing that i've watched and loved lately poker face i love poker face oh, oh my gosh Yes. Oh my gosh. I did not realize that I wanted Columbo and Murder She Wrote back until right? <laughs> with Natasha Leon. Yeah. Poker Face is amazing. Well, oh what's killing me is how many young people love it. It's just like, oh, did you know? It's like, yes, we did know about Columbo. It got me watching Columbo again. Like, I wasn't a Columbo fan ever, but I'm like, let me go. Yes. When Poker Face was done, I'm like, let me go watch Columbo. <laughs> Well, what you know, that? one of the things I remember um, with Columbo, like Johnny Cash was on Columbo. And so they're doing a lot of things that make Columbo popular in the moment where it's just like, oh, wait, is that Nick Nolte? <laughs> is, that, um, is that all these crazy big guest stars, like yeah. but just for one episode yeah. and often they're the color. And it's just kind of, it's just great. I love it. I love it so much. Lots and lots of butter. And Inez, what are you watching or reading and loving? Oh, I'm about to start. I've got to rewatch first. That's why I haven't started. Um, have you guys ever watched? Her? You have watched Miss Scarlet and the Duke? No. But no. Leslie has. No? I have a memory of this. Okay, no. Miss Scarlet and the Duke is... Because um, you told me it wasn't a romance, and that's why I didn't watch it. It is a... You know I don't like slow burn. So every time you were talking about slow burn, I was rolling my eyes on camera. <laughs> um, and it's a slow burn, but it is so high tension so high tension that I can't, I can't look away, but I need to, it's been a, almost a year. So I need to rewatch the the first and the second season before I watch the third season. But it is this, um, it's set, I think in the Victorian age, Leslie knows that I get my ages mixed up, <laughs> but it's like, it's the past. It's historical. It's the past. Enough for now. It's historical. Nice dresses. Right? <laughs> nice dresses. And it's not like really big dresses. It's the smaller dresses. So, <laughs> Yeah, more tailored. It's probably not Victorian. Anyway, um, the daughter of the um, the 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 one of London's most amazing um, private investigators, um, her father dies, and um, and she'd been helping him for years, actually solving a lot of the crimes. But when he um, on the day he passes away, no one knows. And she, she's kind of like, what am I going to do now? I'm a woman. Nobody will take me seriously. And someone comes to her dad's office saying, I need, I need a private investigator. I'm going to pay this amount of money. And she's like, oh, I will pass this message along to my dad. Nice. And she takes the case. And that's where we start. And it's Miss Garlic and the Duke because the Duke, childhood friend, it's crazy tension. They clearly want each other, but they both are clearly like, no, I can't give in to my feelings. The Duke is the chief of police who is who knows how smart she is and who knows, who knows her value and who knows her worth and knows that if he lets this woman get close to him, she will wreck his heart because she's just one of those women that you feel like is not gonna be a stay-at-home mom. And that's <laughs> what he wants. He wants a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Yeah, it's that. And so I need to catch up on um, the first two seasons. I'm I'm actually bummed that it got renewed for... Uh, no, this is season four. I need to... I, I need first to catch three. Up. Yeah. And I, I'm bummed that they ju it just got renewed because I figured if this was the last season, they would finally get together. So oh, I, I, That is a slow burn. Three, four seasons? Yeah. I, 
I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't have the patience for that. <laughs> it's it's really good, and you can it's yeah. I'm but that's that's kind of like the moonlighting problem when once they get together, the show goes downhill. So you kind of want them not to get together. Yeah, this pro- this problem like Castle solved. I don't. Feel, I feel like you see how to do it. Did Castle? You never finished it. Because I heard that the last couple seasons when oh, they were each other, but they but they never they don't break up. Okay, fair, fair. Anyway, yeah, that's what I'm. Anyway. That's what I'm about. About to watch. watch. It's been amazing picking the brain of Theodora Taylor, our celebrity guest, who is just a genius with universal <laughs> fantasies. Like seriously, you have a special talent, a special gift that I bow down to, and I thank loved you. hearing it from directly from you. So thank you for being here. And she has not only two books out now. About universal fantasies. There's also a course. Woohoo! Want to tell us how people can sign up for that course? Oh, just go to um, sevenfigurefiction.com. I think you can also just go sevenff.com if I'm remembering correctly. And but try sevenfigurefiction.com if not. And everything's there in order to take the course, in order to buy the books. Um, It's all there on the site. I have read the books. I've taken the course. I can highly 1,000 million percent oh, recommend it. And it's not just because I like Theodora. <laughs> it's because it's it's fabulous information. But for you guys, Leslie and I want to thank you so much for joining us. And let us know what you think. You can leave a comment on YouTube with your thoughts on the episode. You can share it with a friend. You see how we shared this episode with our friend Theodore and how it turned out. (laughs) So you can share it with a friend who loves romance, but make sure please to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can always check out our book schedule on our website, inkandmagic.net, so that you can read along with us as we continue on our side changeling journey by Nalini Singh. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.